This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hi there, Sopan. It's so exciting to be part of this conversation with you. Uh, I really, really loved reading your book. And one of the things that I was drawn to while reading it was the sense that there's certain elements of it that I could really relate to as a first-generation Indian uh, child of immigrants myself. And yet it was also a very, very different story than my own. And as I read your book, there were so many different levels to it. There was the child of immigrant story, uh, but there was also this other underlying story about estrangement and reconciliation um, and what, what it means to find a place that's called home. And, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and early on, you talk about, you know, how you, in your comedy, you used to sort of reinforce certain stereotypes of Indian culture, but your story was actually did not fit those stereotypes. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you see your story as unique um, from other sort of first-generation child of immigrant stories. Yeah, uh, so first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm so happy to hear, hear, uh, be here, and I'm, I'm so glad that the story resonated with you. Um, in terms of how this is different than other first-generation story um, stories, I, I will just say that, look, the, the book as a whole, for those of our listeners who might not know, is about, um, it tracks a year of my life uh, as I try to reconnect with my estranged immigrant parents. My parents were both arranged to get married in the 1970s. Uh, they had a really toxic arranged marriage. I really didn't get to know them much growing up, even though we lived in the same house because we never spoke. And in my 20s, I essentially uh, kind of became estranged from both of them. So when I started writing the book, uh, I had not seen my father in 11 years and my and my mother in something like five years. I didn't even know where they were living when we started mm-hmm. writing the book. And to answer your question of what makes this first generation um, story different is that that in itself being totally estranged from your parents is an unusual thing. Yes. I think, you know, I think that that in itself is what makes it different in that's why I kind of thought it was interesting to track this in some way, because the reason I, 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 I realized it was unusual is that when I, when I spoke to, you know, I tell my friends, Hey, I haven't, Oh yeah. I haven't seen my father in 11 years where they asked me, how's your mom doing? I'm like, I really have no idea. I haven't spoken to her in five years. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be like, that's, that's not normal. And I realized, mm-hmm. oh, you're right. Um, and so that's why I thought this story, you know, of trying to find them and get to know them, I thought that's why it was worth telling and why what, it might not be the same experience as other first-generation immigrants like yourself have. Or excuse me, as children of first-generation. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking, like, I can't go three days without talking to my mom, you know? Right. And I think that's what people normally think of as South Asian families being super tight-knit. But there are all sorts of ways in which we all have, you know, things that don't fit that stereotypical vision. Um, And that's one of the reasons I was so drawn to your story, because I think you actually speak to a lot of uh, universal themes that I think people of many different cultures can relate to, whether or not they're talking to their families is like, how do we actually understand the people who raised us, right? Totally. And, And one of the early things I write in the book is, this is not the story of all South Asians, a story of one South Asian. Um, And so, you know, because part of the, part of the issue is, is that when it it, here in, at least in the West, so to speak, you know, whenever stories get, it's very rare for these kind of stories to get published to begin with, whether it's in film, television, books or whatever. And there's only a certain type. It's usually like, you know, I can, it's like, I I can count on my fingers how many of these types of stories have been out there. It's like, it's like the namesake, it's Mm -hmm. Slumdog Millionaire and like, and like two or three others, you know, maybe. Right. So, um, so anyway, I, all that to say, you know, I, I'm 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 happy that um, you know, that it's reaching people in the way that it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that really struck me, and I think can a lot of people can relate to, no matter their background, is this question of what is home, right? And at the very opening of your book, you start by sharing a conversation you had with your uncle Atish, where he says. Um, you know, Shambo, the thing is that if you do not have peace at home, you can work hard or whatever, but you've got to have someone to come back to. 
And then you circle back to that same conversation at the end of your book. And I thought that was a really fascinating way to bookend it um, and really think about what is, what does home mean? So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how your sense of home evolved through this process of getting back in touch with your folks. Yeah, of course. So, you know, growing up home was a very cold place, right? Mm -hmm. We all lived together, my brother, my mother, my father and I, but we never spoke. We rarely mm -hmm. ate dinners together. We barely spent time together. It didn't, it was, it was a home in the physical sense, but not in the emotional or mental sense. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I never asked my mother when her birthday was or how old mm -hmm. she was or same thing for my father. I never knew any of that stuff until I was 30. Home for me, I realize as I, as I get older, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm engaged now mm -hmm. to, um, to my fiance, Wesley, who plays a big part of the yeah. book and, um, and, and, you know, Wesley's home to me, you know, yeah. and I've never had that kind of, um, I've never had that kind of a feeling before of just pure and un, 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 you know, unfiltered, unconditional love, right? And that's home. Mm -hmm. And I never realized that until I got older. Now for Atish, my uncle, he has that with his wife who he was arranged to get married mm -hmm. to. Part of the reason I spent a good amount of time with him on the book, in the book, is that, you know, I don't want a lot of first generation immigrants, you know, write about arranged marriage being this, you know, terrible institution, blah, 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 blah. And, and for me, I want to show, tell some stories about ones that really worked out very well. Mm -hmm. And my uncle's arranged marriage is worked out very well and they're very happy. They would not want to have met any other way. So yeah. um, my uncle who lives in Canada, you know, we, we speak, he, um, he uh, you know, he knows what love is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in spite of the fact that his marriage wasn't a quote unquote love marriage, so to speak. Right, yeah. Yeah, I really, I, I wanted to actually pick up on that theme of uh, arranged marriage and, and ask you more about Wesley. But one of the things that I wanted to share is, you know, my parents actually were really unique for their time and that they had a quote, love marriage. Hmm. Um, but they still ideologically, especially my dad supported the idea of arranged marriage. And once I asked him, I said, I don't understand. How could you marry someone you don't know? And he said, well, Alka, you don't really get know someone until you're married to them. <laughs> Which, that's very funny. It's so true, right? I mean, right? that's very it's, true. It's like this idea that you just kind of have to make it work. But as you point out, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And I really yeah. thought, it, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was okay, going to yeah. say, I was going to um, speak to, I thought the phrasing that you used was so poignant when you said it was like there was an invisible hand that brought the most two incompatible people together um, to yeah. bring your folks together. You know, it's interesting. You know, I think a lot of arranged marriages of my parents' generation, even now, like it's it's a business arrangement at first, right? Mm -hmm. It's a it's it's people separate from this bring these two people together, and you know, the love comes later, right? Mm -hmm. In theory, and for my parents, that love just never happened, and they didn't divorce because, you know, divorce is very stigmatized in mm -hmm. South Asian culture. And so they just stayed together because they came together as a business arrangement. They might as well just carry out the business arrangement and have kids and raise them and try to okay. achieve whatever semblance of the American dream they could. Um, you know, but the other point of my book is, you know, look, in my parents' case, you know, divorce would have been very healthy years mm -hmm. before. It was one of those things where divorce didn't happen. It ended up being very... Um, toxic for both of them. They only ended up getting divorced after 30 years of marriage when they should have gotten divorced a year after marriage, you know? Yeah. So for that, you know, I think divorce can be a really healthy thing and this is getting very dark and I apologize for that. But um, divorce can be a very healthy thing, you know, if, if the relationship is toxic. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, our generation is, is holding very differently. And I think a lot of times, uh, the elders talk about the increase in divorce rates as sort of this like breakdown of the family. But in a lot of ways, it's really people trying to uh, to find themselves in a new way outside of these confines, you know, of what's socially acceptable. Totally, yeah. totally. You know, uh, and, and look, and we should also know, you know, things have changed since my parents yeah. were arranged. And that was in 1970, I want to say 1975, 1977. Right. Like and, and, um, you know, things, things are not like they used to be. And I think mm -hmm. culture is getting a little bit more progressive depending on where you are. And, you know, um, I don't, I wish that my mother in particular had a chance to experience a progressive life. Like my mother is in her seventies now mm -hmm. and my mother's never like experienced a crush. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I had a crush when I was like 12, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my mother has been, my, I'm, I'm being presumptuous here, but I'm assuming, but like my mother is seven years old and she was essentially, you know, kind of told this is what you're doing with your love yeah. life for the rest of your life. And so she's never had the uh, opportunity. Like, I don't think my mother's ever been on like a date and she's in her seventies. What a strange- you, you, you might not know though. I might not know. That's very true. It's very, that's very true. I'm sure it's possible that might happen, but as far as I know, yeah, that has never happened. Right. Whereas, you know, that, that's so commonplace, you know, mm-hmm. for everybody, you know, so, but I, I, that never really crystallized for me until I started this process of asking my parents all these questions about themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're turning to your parents. I want to talk a little bit more about your dad and then maybe we'll t- talk to your mom. I yeah. really, really love the way you describe your dad. I mean, I just thought he, he came across as just so uh, idiosyncratic and so interesting, you know, and uh, the statement that he said is like, you know, I, I won't hesitate to say that I have a superiority complex. <laughs> like, just that way of putting it just kind of cracked me up. And so if you could just speak a little bit more to, it sounds like you had a certain picture of him when you went to India and then you met him and you were oh like, oh. Yeah. You know, when I... When I got off a plane in Kolkata, mm-hmm. so l- let's first let's first back this up a little, which is I did not know where my dad was living. Mm-hmm. I just knew they lived somewhere in India at last check. Yeah. And so I emailed him and said, Dad, I'm gonna come see you. I haven't seen you in 11 years. Where do you, where should we book this ticket to? Mm-hmm. At first he wouldn't tell me for whatever reason. I, I have no idea what. He was like, I'll come to you. You just tell me where to go. Yeah. And I said, Dad, we'll come see you at your apartment or whatever. Just tell us where to go. He finally tells me that he lives in Kolkata. Mm-hmm. We land in Kolkata. Now, I haven't seen my father in 11 years. And the last time I saw mm-hmm. him was my freshman year in college at Boston University. Mm-hmm. He came up to visit me and he looked kind of old and haggard and like life had just beaten him mm-hmm. down and like whatever. And, um, and um, so that's, I was expecting that except 11 years worse, right? Yeah. So we, we're sitting on the sidewalk, my fiance and I, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never forget this. And we actually have tape of it. You, I, I mm-hmm. tweeted it out my dad comes bursting out of these doors and striding towards on the sidewalk. And you could kind of see my face where I'm like, wait, is that what he looks like? Mm-hmm. The day before we landed, my dad sent us a picture. If you don't remember what I look like, here's a picture. And the picture is him with sunglasses on and, and baseball cap and like a Bart Simpson t-shirt, which is like what you send someone when you don't want to be recognized. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so um, my dad, when we see him, he's toned, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he dressed well. He's got a dress shirt on. He has flowers for Wesley, but he looks muscular. He looks tanned. He's telling us that he plays tennis three times yeah. a week, yoga, golf, swimming. He's part of a cosmology club. And I'm like, who is this man? And where has he been for the last 30 years? He's like living his best life, as Oprah would say. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, any, anyway, um, it, it, it was it was it was quite stunning, and he's yeah. he's very much built a very vibrant life for himself in India. Mm-hmm. And another for those of you who haven't read the book, uh, my freshman year of college, he left for India without telling anybody. Mm-hmm. He just left, and I never asked him where he went. That's how distant we were from each other. Right. And so, look, on some level, look, my dad has very much rebuilt his life in India. On the other hand, look, as he said, look, I think the quote is, "The lights of my life are not around me." Yeah. Referring to me and my brother and I. Right. And. Um, and uh, I think, so he, he has physically a lot going on, but, you know, I think emotionally he'll always be a little empty because he lives there and not mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned what was surprising about your interaction with him in terms of how he is doing physically and doing really well. But what, what kind of hit you as far as the conversations that you had? Because it just, as I read it, I was really struck by how you had experienced the estrangement so differently than he did, you know? Well, and this is, this is a cultural thing. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my dad described his father as a bit of an authoritarian. Mm-hmm. They never talked about emotion. They never communicated about anything real. He just was very much like, this is what you do with your life and, you know, whatever. And so I barely had contact with my father growing up, even though we lived in the same house. Mm-hmm. And yet my dad saw that relationship as closer and more healthy than the one that yeah. he had. <laughs> and I thought that was just so... Mind blowing, kind of. Like, yeah. I was like, what are you, what world do you live in? And that's one of the moments where I realized, oh my God, we are in such different spaces as yeah. humans, as, you know, whatever, you know. And so, um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was like one of those things where 
I found that to be the case in a lot of our conversation where I was like, oh my God, I never realized how different our worldviews were until, Mm -hmm. you know, he grew up in India. I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. So I, I, and you, you have no idea how much those worldviews diverge until you have these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And yet at the same time, I mean, here you are coming from a very different time, very different cultural, like upbringing, but you note you note in your book that there's things about him that you're, are similar to you. So I was wondering if you could speak to, you know, despite our attempts to not be like our parents, right? Sometimes um, we often find that we have a lot in common with them. Right. So I'm wondering if well, you could speak to that. I remember we were walking, um, he was taking us to a temple the, uh, on, the, on the distributary of the Ganges. And, 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 and he was walking, he says, you know, you're a comedian. And, uh, you know, you're just like me. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he says, a comedy. Is, I'm the, always the funniest guy in the room. And I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? I've never seen you make a joke in your life. Yeah. You know, um, there are some things that we have in common. The one that sticks out to me the most is that in my dad's apartment, he has these paintings, these beautiful paintings. Uh-huh. And, and um, I remember asking my dad, one of them's like The Last Supper, one of them's, you know, a couple uh-huh. of famous paintings. And my dad told me that he commissioned these paintings mm-hmm. specifically to be hist- what he thought to be historically accurate versions yeah. of paintings he liked. And I thought it was the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. I think like, that was, was my favorite part. It was so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the Last Supper. He had the Last Supper repainted by an artist because he felt like uh, he felt like Da Vinci didn't do it correctly. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding? Now, I'm a journalist, right? That's my yeah. day job. And yeah. I'm like, Wait, that's he. So he's fact checking famous paintings. That's, yeah. that's what I would do. Right. I'm, the, I'm the guy who's watching TV and film and trying to pick out plot holes. Yeah. And so um, that's one place. One place where dad, my dad and I are very, you know, I think very alike. I mean, in some ways, if you think about it, as a comedian, what are you doing? You're mm-hmm. trying to point out illogical things and make them logical. My dad was an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. In many ways, that kind of critical thinking is. Um, is is what he brings to that job in that field, right? So uh, you know, yeah, I, I learned that we had a lot more in common than we realized. I mean, we're still very different people, but there sure. are definitely some commonalities that existed. And one thing we definitely have in common was that we're both terrible at sports. Mm-hmm. You know, we played tennis together, and we were both horrible at it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> and, I thought that story was pretty funny too. Yeah. yeah. So um, you know, we're both not. We don't have the athletic gene in the death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's turn, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your mom now, Bishaka. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of intense things that you experienced in your relationship with her. You mentioned her depression and like all these secrets that she was keeping. Um, but there was also a fond memory that you share, the story about the turkeys. I was wondering if you could maybe recount that for us. Absolutely. Um, I was probably, when, I, when we were, when I was six, we lived in this kind of rural area of New Jersey, in, in mm-hmm. Jersey, Randolph. And, and, um, and we used to live right next to the woods. And one fall, uh, a flock of wild turkeys migrates to this area. I don't remember. I think there's probably, I want to say a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. We used to hang out on our lawn, whatever. I didn't think much of it. And one day, I'm walking, I think, to a neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. My mom is watching, uh, you know, from the front kind of step, watching me walk, walk across the street or whatever. And it's raining, so I start running. And turkeys are pretty territorial by nature. Mm-hmm. I think they th- were threatened by me or something. So they start kind of chasing after me. And then I'm like this little chubby, you know, 68-year-old kid just like running, running around. And my mom jets out, mm-hmm. you know, runs into her car like a, you know, a spy, turns on the car, backs out and just floors and disperses the turkeys to protect me from getting uh yeah. to death and um you know uh you know my mother and i were never very close growing up but that was a moment where i think my mother looks back on pretty fondly it's a funny story mm-hmm. you know but my mother probably looks at that and thinks of it as you know her being kind of a, a proud mama bear protecting her mm-hmm. cub you know mm-hmm. and yeah. so uh, i think she she views it pretty fondly yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons I was struck by that story, it's just that there's these moments that no matter how difficult things are, the, that we hold on to, right? These memories that where things were lighter or we could actually feel that love that felt so absent most of the time. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there are books, there are memoirs that are like, that start with trauma and end with trauma and it's like yeah. 250 pages of trauma. Right. 
Yeah. And I don't, I don't begrudge people that sure. do that. But when I wrote this, I wanted this book to express who I am. Mm-hmm. And, and truthfully, you know, I, I think I am, you know, I think I'm an optimist. At least I try mm-hmm. to be an optimistic person. And I wanted the book to have an optimistic feel. Yeah. And I, I, didn't want, I didn't want the reader to have like this horrible time reading it. It might be a great book. I didn't want them to be sad at the end. Right. I, you know, I, I, I didn't have a traumatic time writing this. Sure. And I want to express that in the words with which I, which I yeah. type. You know, I think for me, that sense of optimism absolutely came through. And I thought you did a really beautiful job of sort of balancing the levity and like the lightness in your life now. Um, well, and in Shamal's life and, and as well as, you know, some of the heavier stuff, like the, the theme of secrets, you know, yeah. and you mentioned that Hassan Minaj in his stand-up show talks about how Indian families love secrets. Yeah. And I, you know, I remember seeing that and I go, yep, yep, so many secrets. And there's, there's a big one uh, that comes toward the end of your, uh, end of your text. Um, and I'm going to read just a couple of sentences from it where you say, My experience was not just about being a brown kid in a white town. I didn't just fall out of touch with my parents because they were immigrants and couldn't relate to me. Something happened. A massive unexposed trauma that unwittingly permeated my entire childhood. And actually, I'm going to ask that we go into some of that heavier stuff for a moment because that that bombshell that was sort of dropped uh, on you I think illuminated so much of what was going on for you in your childhood. So I was wondering if you could just speak to that a bit. Sure. Um, my mother, uh, in the so in the course of me interviewing her, she tells me that you know I asked her how she came to this country. She said she came by herself when she was about sixteen. Mm-hmm. Her her father had died, and her mother had just sent her off to Canada. And I found that to be a kind of an odd thing. Like, wait a minute. So your mother, so wait, your mother, so this is my grandmother, sent you to Canada by yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and because I was just kind of easing into these conversations with my mother, and these are very difficult conversations, I didn't really press much. I was like, okay, well, it's okay. I mean, that's her life. If that's, that's what and I was like, wow, but it, it built this kind of resentment inside of me. Um, towards my grandmother. How could you send a 16-year-old woman who doesn't know the language, who's never been on a plane before, how could you send her to Canada by, by herself? Like, what's crazy? Um, months later, I think it's around Christmas time, I'm with the aforementioned Atish, who is her brother and my uncle. And, um, and I think he tells me, uh, he mentions, oh yeah, you know, your mother, you know, she, was a, she came to your grandfather's funeral. Mm-hmm. came to my grandfather's funeral really how's that possible well you know she was married I'm like she was married what are you talking about she's married mm-hmm. oh she was married before your father and i said what and so it turns out my mom was married before my father and i never knew that in my life mm-hmm. and it turns out from my, from what my uncle said um the marriage was you know it was traumatic it was abusive um it didn't last very long maybe a year or two mm-hmm. and i was like Oh, it just clicked. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, so much of my childhood makes sense now. Right. Because, because, of course, my mom didn't want to be arranged to get married to my father. Of course, she had this aversion to getting married again. Of course, she was, you know, very profoundly, um, she had all this, one of the things that I, I, I talk about a bunch in the book is mental health treatment. She never got therapy. She never, she never had anyone to speak to about her fears and insecurities. And, 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 and you know, she, she essentially, she was, she was, she was a, a victim, you know, and, and she, never, she never was treated for it. Instead, she was just moved on to the next marriage as if this was like, uh, you know, uh, as she had been laid off, as if she had been laid off from a job and just got a new job. Yeah. And so, so much made sense to me that this, we're talking about decades of unaddressed, buried trauma. And, um, you know, I kind of, I got on the phone with my mom and I had to, I wouldn't, I I, I don't want to use the word confront, but I I very gently, you Mm -hmm. know, brought this up to her. I said, mom, were you married? Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, she was silent. And uh, I remember, you know, she was kind of like, who told you? And then she, you know, she had, it was a very difficult conversation. 
And I said, mom, it's okay that you've been married. Cause there's a part of her that I could tell that saw herself as a failure. And I was like, it's okay that you were married previously. It's not, it's not a big deal, yeah. you know, but, um, but this is the cultural expectation part of it. This is the, yeah. this is the, this is, this is the part where, you know, I think in many ways, you know, South Asian culture failed my parents. Mm -hmm. that a, there was, there's this expectation that, you know, there's this kind of frowning on people that are married multiple times, a mm -hmm. frowning on mental health treatment, a mm -hmm. frowning on divorce, a frowning mm -hmm. on, you know, you know, and then just arranging these two mismatched souls together. Um, there, there's just a lot in that, that stem from this, that, that in that I would say that the culture failed my mother. Right. And I, and I think that was such a, um, a key list that you shared of sort of the, the limitations of the culture. And I would add to that sort of this um, sense that parents, and you know, I think this happens in other cultures too, uh, hide so much from their kids, right? Yeah. Where it's like we are not able to see them as these full complex beings who've had their own traumas and their own challenges, mm -hmm. but just as, as, as these all-powerful figures, you know, again, which is something I think that happens in every culture. But I think one of the things that's different in maybe Asian cultures is that even as we get older, our parents don't still try to keep those things from us, you know? Well, so, so use the words try to keep these things from yeah. us. Yeah. And I actually would push back and say, it's not that they try to keep these things from us. I actually think the generation before us, they don't know to tell us these things. Ah. It's, not, it's not an active, I'm going to hide this from you. Right. It's an active, oh, we're supposed to tell our kids that? Ah. Oh, you know, yeah. oh, we're, like my mom, it's not that my mom and dad for that matter. It's not that my mom and dad rejected therapy for the sake of conversation. You know, it's not that they rejected it. It's that they didn't know the language with which they had to communicate to understand mm. the needed therapy. Mm -hmm. right? it's, two, it's two different things. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, I'm sure that my parents, if they truly understood who therapy was for or whatever, they, they would have um, been able, I, I think it could have really helped them, but you know, they didn't know to ask for it. They didn't know to mm. ask for that because you know, there's a stigma that comes with therapy. I think, you know, in my parents' generation that doesn't exist as much in my generation. So um, anyway, I, I think it's less active, yeah. actively hiding it, if that makes sense. But I really appreciate that reframe. It just doesn't even occur that this yeah, is something right. that needs to be yeah, shared. Yeah, right. yeah. 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 So having kind of shared some of the things that, you know, have been really challenging about South Asian culture and how it affected your parents' upbringing, what are some of the, the gifts you feel, though, that have come through for you as being uh, Indian American? Uh, for my parents specifically or just generally? No, just, just generally from the South Asian culture. You know, I love, there are two things that come to mind you know, right away. First thing is I speak fluent Bengali mm -hmm. and I'm very proud of that. I, I, I really, I think I, I, I'm, really, I'm really grateful to my parents that they spoke Bengali to me growing up because I really love being bilingual. I think that's, mm -hmm. I, th I think, um, you know, I think that's, uh, I, I'm just proud of it. Yeah. Secondly, I love the food. The food is to die for. You know, I, I can't get enough of it. Um, you know, my, every, every night for dinner growing up, my parents, um, you know, my mom would make Indian food. Mm -hmm. um, thirdly, you know, I, you know, in terms of those are, those are things I, like, I'm very proud of. And thirdly, like, you know what? Um, I grew up in a very white town, mm -hmm. uh, Howell, New Jersey. You know, uh, I'm in a field that is very white, journalism, mm -hmm. comedy for that matter. And, you know, I'm proud of being a little different. I'm proud I look a little different. I'm proud I've had a different worldview. I'm proud I've have, I'm proud I've had a different experience. And I'm proud that, you know, I my you know kind of route to finding myself was different than others. You know, I I, I take pride in that because I, I take pride that my life has been a zig instead of a zag. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. So um that, that's kind of what, I, what I'd say on that. Yeah, because it's all the things that we go through and all parts of it are what makes us who we are, ultimately. Right, right. No, definitely. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and frankly, like, you know, I, I've struggled for years with this, but, you know, I, I, have I made mistakes? Have I been perfect? No. Are, are there things, should I have reached out to my parents earlier? Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, but in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I was able to reach out to my parents when I was 30, specifically because the person I keep became then, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Oh, so yeah. I, I would not have, um, you know, 
I'm proud of the person I became at 30 to reach out for them. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to actually segue into because it's like you start, I think, uh, earlier in the book, um, you express sort of this framework that how your parents sort of abandoned you either physically or emotionally or both. And, and then at some point you come to realize, look, I have a role in this too. Yeah. You know, I haven't been reaching out. So I think that um, a proper reconciliation or proper, you know, anytime you go through a process like this, mm-hmm. for those of your listeners who might be thinking about this for themselves, you, you have to look inward. And you have to be willing to look in the mirror and wonder what you brought to the table. Mm-hmm. And look, in the, I, I was an adult for mm-hmm. the last, I'm 32, so let's say, let's, let's say when I turned 18, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 13 years where I also wasn't the best son to them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more I could have done. There's more I could have done to understand the world that they came. Like I waited until I was 30 to reach out to them. Yeah. That's the two-way street. So in some ways, I, you know, I gave up on them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I thought it was really important for me to convey to my, because a lot of, a lot of, I think a lot of immigrant kids are very like, this is what my parents did to me. Right. right. A lot of humans are like that. Right? right. This, this friend mistreated me, this boss mistreated me, this so-and-so annoyed me. And you never think to yourself like, okay, but what did you bring to the dynamic mm-hmm. that caused this to happen? Right. And so that was part of the process for me in, in doing, in doing this. Yeah. Absolutely. And as you look back at that, what have you learned about yourself in terms of why you didn't reach out earlier? And well, um, my twenties were tumultuous professionally, um, mm-hmm. as many people, uh, as many journalists lives are, you know, I dealt with a lot of layoffs. I was, you know, there were bouts of unemployment. There was, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, and frankly, I just wasn't ready. You know, my parents were footnotes in my life. They were footprints, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't ready to, um, I wasn't ready to, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to, I, I didn't have the space in my life for them at that point, mm-hmm. right or wrong. And sure. I, I, obviously, obviously it's wrong, but I just didn't, I didn't have the mental space for them at that point because I just, I felt like I had too much to deal with on my own. And so, um, you know, that, so that's why it took so long. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of the calculation for doing it in 2018 when I did was my parents, I didn't know their exact ages, but I knew they were significantly older mm-hmm. and they might die. Mm-hmm. And they, in fact, with my mother's case, she might've already died when we, when we when I started writing the book. And, 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 and so there's a part of me that's like, you know what, if you don't do this now, you might never get the chance again. Mm-hmm. You know? And so there's a, you know, death has a way of, uh, you know, death has a permanence to it that can speed up. Yes. Life. I just got a chat thing about my mic, so needed to adjust that. Oh, no worries. <laughs> um, you know, I want to shift gears just slightly, and then we'll come, we'll cycle back to this. But um, I really was moved by hearing the times where you talked about growing up and seeing, you know, happy families on TV and weddings, and and really wanting that for yourself, you know. Yeah. And then Wesley, you know, your fiance is featured in the book as someone who's just really supportive to you, um, and you know, it looks like you've had a really healthy relationship. Um, but I would love if you could speak a little bit more to that relationship and what all the things that you've learned from this experience with your parents, what you're bringing to, you know, uh, getting married soon. Maybe getting married soon, yeah. depending on all this. Um, well, yeah. You know, I, asked, I got asked a question uh, on, by, by an interviewer early on in the, in the, in the press tour. And the question was, it was, it was, uh, the question was, if you think about the trauma that you endured growing up, how does that manifest itself in your relationship with Wesley? And it totally threw me off. I was like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, are you asking me if I, you know, if, if we have an abusive relationship because of what I grew up with? And I didn't say that, but in my head, I was like, oh, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, and to this day, I still don't know how to answer that question because Truthfully, truthfully, Wesley and I, at least, you know, you know, she's upstairs. Um, I think she, I hope she agrees that, you know, we're, we've built a very stable relationship for ourselves where I speak for myself. I'm very happy with her. I I hope she's happy with me. She agreed to get married to me. I think about this all the time in like, well, how is it that, um, you know, you did okay. You built this loving relationship with Wesley, but your parents, but you, but your model is your parents. 
Um, the best answer I can give to you is that, you know, there, I think there's one of two ways this can go. Mm-hmm. One way is that, you know, you internalize everything that you, you grew up with and that's your model and that's, that's how you go approach a relationship and that ends up being, you have the same, a similar toxicity that you had growing sure. up. The other way is that you internalize it and you know what not to do, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that's the case for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that I had this subconscious kind of like okay, I'm going to over communicate with Wesley because my parents under communicated with each other mm-hmm. and, and me, right? I, I think you know, but I, look, I'm very fortunate to have Wesley. Wesley was a big part of the book coming together. Mm-hmm. She helped with the proposal. She copy edited. She she you know uh, she carried me across the finish line when I didn't want to be carried. Yeah. She she encouraged me to reach out to my parents. Um, she's, she, I'm very fortunate to have her, uh, you know, I, you know, they're, they're, I, I, you know, part of the reason we're supposed to get married in April and I, I'd like it to be tomorrow before she realized what a con job I pulled here. Um, but, uh, but we'll see if that happens. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I really think your framing is, uh, is really apt and a part of me, but also wonders how much of that is like your, your parents and your aunts and uncles were just saying marriage is luck. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and look, marriage is like, you know, I'll never forget something that, you know, my, my, either my, my dad said this and separately Atish said this, which was like, you know, you could be dating, you know, you could be dating five years and then you'll get divorced. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you know, it what was interesting to me about this journey is that I kind of thought that my parents would be very against the institution of arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Right. And look at how badly it worked out for me. I, I, I don't recommend that for anybody. But that wasn't even in their vocabulary. They would, they, they were just like, well, it didn't work out for me. It doesn't mean it's not for other people, right. you know. And so I, I was really fascinated by that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's very similar. Like in the West, if people have a, a, a marriage of their choosing and it doesn't work out, right? They don't say, well, love marriages don't work. That's because that's the only framework, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. No, you're you're absolutely right. You know, um, I, I did. Um, you know, one of the things I wondered about seeing my dad in particular, who had been gone from the country for 11 years, I thought maybe he'd land and he would have remarried maybe. I was like, am I going to meet a stepmom I didn't know existed? Mm-hmm. And it turned out it never even, what was so interesting to me is that it, neither my par- neither my parents, it was like such a foreign concept to them, remarried. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, and that, that's again, that's right. one of those things that feels like it's such a cultural um, albatross because like, it's okay to remarry. It's okay mm-hmm. to, you know, start again. But, you know, my parents never saw it that way. Yeah. And and I think it's changing quite a bit now, you know, in India as well as among Indian Americans uh, of our generation, you know, right. I think we right. are seeing people kind of carve out new directions for themselves, which, which I think is a positive trend. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And look, every generation gets more progressive, you know. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, it's not that, I should also note that there are a lot of values that my parents brought to the table, that bring to the table, mm-hmm. Day that are valuable and should be passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And one of them is, I think, I think the defining trait of my parents' generation compared to mine, you know, my parents, you know, they came here to this country and their primary goal was to survive, mm-hmm. right? And to get to the end of the day. Like they didn't have room to think about their emotional needs and wants. Whereas I grew up, you know, middle-class upbringing in suburban New Jersey. You know, I'm not worried about where my next paycheck is coming from or, mm-hmm. you know, where food's going to be on the table. I'm thinking about like, oh, I want to be a comedian. So I will pursue this career track. I have a crush on my next door neighbor. I will now act on that crush. Those are the kind of things I had the freedom to think about. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's honestly, it is a privilege I never realized I had until I went through this journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And he talked about, you know, change of generations. And in your book, you allude to thinking about your future children. Sure. Yeah. You ask your dad, like, what do you want me to pass on to your grandchildren? And it seems like this is a question that's really been up for you. Like, how would you do this? How would you parent differently? So I was wondering if Ooh. you could speak to that. How would I parent differently? <laughs> that's an interesting question. You know, Wesley and I talk about this, you know, quite a bit. I always joke with her that I'm going to be the cool dad. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to, kids, I don't, I don't care if you do your homework, but mom wants you to do it. So you better do it. I don't really care. You don't have to. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, it's one of those things that I, you know, I feel like you kind of have to do it. 
But there are things that I'm going to make sure, at least I, I hope to make sure, like no one ever intends, I don't think, to be a bad parent. But I, I hope to really make sure to over communicate with the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, want, I want to make sure that they feel, they feel at home. I want, mm-hmm. I want home to feel like an actual home. And I want them, I, you know, this doesn't mean that I won't need to be stern with them with necessary or whatever, but I want them to be able to be honest with me about stuff. And, you know, I want them to feel cared for. I want them to feel pushed and, and, and yeah. motivated and all that stuff. Now, I think a lot of, every parent wants that stuff, but how they achieve that is different for every parent. And so, and who knows if I get it right. I hope so. You know, ask me mm-hmm. in 30 years or so. Right. Ask your kids, right? More of my, if, my kids, kids, yeah. if my kids write a mistranslation sequel, we'll know things went kind of wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears once again and talk a little bit more about these themes of responsibility and forgiveness and, and healing. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the reasons I think your book has such broad resonance beyond a particular culture is because virtually everyone can think of whether it's not a family member, it could be a, a former, you know, relationship partner, a former friend where there's been an estrangement, right. And this desire to heal. Um, so I could, I wonder if you could just speak to more about what you've learned for yourself or what you want people to take with them. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a long answer here, which is first of which is that, so the, so I, I finished writing an initial manuscript. Um, uh-huh maybe like four months before it's due. And I start sending it around to my mother, my father, and my brother. And my brother's not in the book that much. And Mm -hmm. that was a very deliberate choice I made, not because we don't have a good relationship or anything like that, but because I wanted this to be about my journey and I didn't want to, you know, if my brother reconnects with my parents, he, I, I want him to do that without any pressure from me. If that got it. Sense. I was wondering about that. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, I, I just didn't want to co-opt his own because he, yeah. you know, he's 10 years older than me. He had a much different experience than I did in some ways, much worse in some ways better. You know, I, I didn't want to um, bring, bring, you know, I didn't want to kind of merge the two. Mm-hmm. And my brother reads the manuscript. I was really worried about what he'd think because we had such different experiences. Right. Maybe he'd think that I was being too easy on my parents or whatever. And, and he, he, he calls me and he reads the manuscript and he goes, uh, uh, okay, cool, nice job, you know, really nicely done and doesn't say much else. Now, my brother and I, part of, we don't, we're very different personality-wise mm-hmm. and, you know, he's, he, I'm much more expressive than he is. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't say much. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. well, well, that's the best I can hope for. That's how it usually is. And a couple of days later, I, I get an email from my brother and, and the email is long. I never get long emails from my brother. And I read it and, and it's pretty profound. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, you write that this book is about reconnecting with your culture. It's not. Mm-hmm. This book is about mm-hmm. forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this whole journey, it was, it was, it was about forgiveness. Now, I disagreed with him that had nothing to do with culture. I, 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 I don't think that's correct. But but he was right that this was chiefly about forgiveness. I had to forgive my parents for, um, you know, for the childhood that we had, you know, and we had to kind of forgive each other for letting each other go. Mm-hmm. And so all this is to say is I think forgiveness is really hard. Mm. Holding on to grudges is really easy. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, 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 and so you have to really work at it. And to do it, I think you really have to look in the mirror, as I said before. You have to really look inward. And you have to be willing to, you know, get yourself out of these entrenched feelings you may have about the other party. And I'd also say that, you know, forgiveness and, and estrangements and, and reconciliations are not obligated. Mm-hmm. So if you are estranged from someone, it might be for good reason. Then you might be, you, there are people that might be toxic figures in your life and they don't they don't deserve a place in your life. And that's okay. You know, my journey isn't for everybody that is a strange sure. from their, you know, or an uncle or a family member or a coworker yeah. or whatever, you know, um, if you, if you are estranged from someone and you really genuinely feel that having that person back in your life would, would not make, be a positive net effect in your life. That's fine. Um, and, and, you know, that's a personal choice, but if you do do it, you have to be prepared to, you know, really look, look in the mirror. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was worried when I was writing it, you know, writing the book, like, hey, uh, who's this book going to be for? Is it just going to be for Indian people? Mm-hmm. And I realized, I was like, no, this book yeah. is for anyone who has a relationship with someone that should be better. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and that's really what struck me because I, I know uh, a lot of white friends or non-Indian friends who've had these kinds of estrangements. And I thought, this is not just for the South Asian community. You know, right. it's, it's really it's really for everyone. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with your brother that it's about forgiveness. I agree with you that it's also about the cultural differences. But I think, you know, before we can have forgiveness, it's also about that willingness to to reach out and to be willing to look under the veil, right? And to, to probe a little bit, to find out what's been going on underneath the surface. And as a journalist, that's what you're trained to do, right? Um, so my next question is, how has this experience of writing this book and reconciling with your family, how has that influenced your work as a journalist and also as a comedian? Well, um, the journalist thing, um, I, I would say it's more the other way around, which is the journalists affected the mm. journey. Meaning, I, I when I interviewed my parents, when I sat down with them at length, um, I sat down with them first and foremost as a journalist for two mm. reasons. One, so I can kind of keep keep. I, I want to keep a distance from my own feelings. This mm. way, I could properly properly not. You know, I, I didn't want to show. I didn't want to have my own preconceived notions coloring the coloring the questions I was asking, mm. and, and so I could properly challenge myself. Um, and secondly, just just as a, I, I just felt like that would be the fairest fairest way to do it. Um, so that I would say the journal, being a journalist impacted the journey. Mm-hmm. In terms of how it affected my comedy, I just feel much more authentic on stage now. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, after doing the book, I haven't really done much stand up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and truthfully, I'm much more interested in comedy writing than mm-hmm. I am in anything else. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so um, um, and so I. Um, you know, I just think I feel more authentic on stage in a way that I didn't before, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because you mentioned right earlier in the book that the sense of inauthenticity after you made some of these sort of cliche jokes about being an yeah. Indian American and uh, that journey of coming into greater authenticity, even though you don't talk about it in terms of comedy in your book, that really shines through. You know, by the time we get to the end of it, it's like, wow, we can see that Sopan is really much more integrated as a human being. So, you know. I was talking to Wesley, my fiance, about this, you know, somewhat recently. And, you know, the book is different than other memoirs because it mm-hmm. truly tracks a year of my life. So mm-hmm. when I was writing chapter six, you know, I did not know how chapter 12, what chapter 12 was going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was no map here. Mm-hmm. I really, it genuinely catches my feelings mm-hmm. in the moment. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, I've had to reread the book a couple of times since it's mm-hmm. come out or whatever. Maybe I'm copy editing or whatever. Sure. And I had to do excerpts and whatnot. And I really visibly feel like the writing gets more confident as the mm-hmm. book goes on. And, and I think that's a reflection of me becoming more confident, me finding myself more as, as the book goes on. So by the end of the book, I, I feel like the writing is a little different than the front half of the book. And I wouldn't change anything. I just, I just, I just you know, it just is an extension. It's just an expression of the journey. Yeah. Well, I, I, I enjoyed the writing consistently throughout the book, but I did get a different sense of you toward the end as, like I said, someone who is more just like clear and integrated about who they are in the world. And that's the point I want to come to because there was a, um, a very uh, sort of harrowing um, statement that you made on page 211, which is, I wish my parents hadn't met each other and had instead found different paths the byproduct of which mean I wouldn't exist. So you're actually questioning, you know, whether you should even exist. And I'm wondering, you know, if you could, and and it wasn't like, oh, I hate my life and I don't want to exist. I I love my life, but, you know. Basically, you know, my my parents, like, like I shouldn't exist in, 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 like, because I wish that my parents hadn't met. Mm -hmm. Because I think they both were so mismatched Mm. And they were both such, 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 you know, s- you know, square peg, round hole, or whatever the, you know, mm. phrase is. You know, there were such, so, such different people. And um, I think that um, I, 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 and so if they hadn't met, I would not be alive. Now, I'm very happy to be alive. I've been mm. able to do some things I'm very proud of in my, in my years on this planet. But I, you know, I wish that they had not met. And that they were able to find happiness that they were not able to find with each other. In theory, that means I mean, I exist in some other form or whatever. I just wish sure. that 
they were able to meet other people because I just think, I just think, you know, my parents have never been in love, at least to my knowledge. And I just wish that they could experience that just even just a little bit. I mean, likely never will at this point because they're in their seventies and, you know, they're very much, you know, kind of, you know, living, living kind of solitary lives. I, I just wish they would be able to find that for themselves. Yeah, because it's something that you found and you want to sure. kind of think about them and yeah, wish that they Absolutely. had that as well. Yeah. Even if it's just like a crush. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, there may be things going on that you don't know about. We never yeah. know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So we have about five minutes left. Um, and as we kind of got into that last few minutes, I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the things that you're really hoping your readers will take away from reading your book or hearing your story? This is, uh, you know, I, I hope that this book makes people who aren't already a bit more empathetic with the generation before us. Because mm-hmm. we often compare, you know, that generation to our own upbringing. And, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes, sometimes that it misses, misses the point. Um, I, also, I, also, I honestly, I genuinely think this book is for anyone who has a relationship that should be better with somebody mm-hmm. in their life. Um, and this provides one person's blueprint to reconnect with one per, you know, one set of parents. Yeah. And, you know, is it a perfect ending? No. You know, are there things that we will work on forever? Yeah. This, this is not an overnight yeah. process either. Right. This doesn't end, you know, you call on a Monday and you're reconnecting on a Tuesday. This, this can take months. It can take years. Like this process is very much ongoing with my parents and their peaks and valleys and all that stuff. But, you know, it's a blueprint. It's, right. it's one person's blueprint. And I hope that um, people find that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And how is that process going now since the book's been out? That process of no, um, communicating with your folks and... Is well, remember that you're starting from zero, yeah. right? So it's a low bar to clear. So certainly yeah. better than it was. I mean, there are good days and bad. Um, but overall, you know, my parents are human to me in a way they never were before. So that in itself was a big win. Um, both of them, you know, have come around on the book. I think it was difficult for them to read at first. Sure. You know, um, and then once it came out, they saw it was getting stronger views. And, you know, they've kind of become mini stars in themselves. I think that, you know, they've come around on the book as sometimes Indian parents are, are known to do when they see, um, you know, positive reception to things. Yeah, that, that's really heartening to hear, you know. Um, and I really liked one of the moments you shared toward the end where you're with your uncle and aunt and Wesley and all these family and you're like, yeah, this feels like home, you know? And yeah. And it, yeah. It was a, I think that was, a, in fact, I believe that was either Christmas Eve or Christmas night. And yeah. probably the first Christmas since I was a kid where I was like, oh, this feels normal. This feels, this feels regular to me. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I just want to say it's great talking with you. So Pat, thank you, so and thank much you for this opportunity. I'm so I'm so I'm so uh, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much. I, this was a great conversation, and yeah, I appreciate I appreciate you um, reading the book. And um, thank you for uh, the great engaging conversation. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.